God, we are um, continuing to learn what it looks like to worship you with our lives and um, with everything we got. And God, that's why we gather. God, show us what it looks like to uh, know you well, to be curious about who you are, to be curious about what you're up to. So we need that. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Seems like there's a hole right here. So if anybody feels like filling it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, sorry, this. It's so wobbly. Morning, everybody. Um, we're going to take our offering. Um, it's partly what we do every Sunday. We, um, we worship with um, things we let go of. And one of the most important ways to learn generosity is to let go of things. And we believe that our offering together is a way to do that, a way to practice that together. And so if you're new, you can let that go right by you. If you want to be a part of that around here, we, we, we would welcome you learning generosity and helping us at the same time become the church we want to be. Um, I have an announcement for us. Two weeks from today, we're moving that way, finally. And uh, here's the thing, now that I've said it out loud, um, there's a lot going on between now and then. So there's a chair party today. You're like, what's a chair party? Well, a chair party is um, all the chairs you're sitting in, just so you know a little bit of the story. So when we bought this building, we didn't have any furniture. We didn't have anything. And I shot a note out to a whole bunch of my pastor buddies and I'm like, hey, you guys got anything like tables and chairs and things? And they're like, yeah. Um, and so all the chairs you're sitting on right now are from Red Rocks Church when they had their campus in Golden. Um, and they had all of these in the basement of their Lakewood campus. And they're, they're like, you can have them. And I'm like, that's awesome. And so these are hand-me-down, hand-me-downs. Um, from Heritage Square into Red Rocks into our hands, and um, they're older, um, and they're just going to need a little love. So today we're going to be cleaning them, fixing them. If you want to stick around for that, there's already a crew that's signed up, but if you're like, hey, I want to get to know some people and hang out, I don't have anything better to do, hang out with us today. That'd be awesome. Next week, we're actually going to move these chairs um, and a bunch of the things you see behind me down the hall. Um, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, one of the things that's happening is as we reinvigorate our check-in system downstairs for kids, since we're going to be kind of separate, a little bit more separate from our children, we are recruiting a check-in slash security person for every Sunday um, that'll be kind of like monitoring the flow. Um, and during our gathering down the hall, they'll be kind of keeping a watchful eye on things. Um, you won't miss Hopefully you won't miss the, the, the audio of the service will be in the family room area down here, so you'll be able to hear everything that's going on and not miss church, um, but you'll be a big help in helping us maintain, you know, some security downstairs. So if you're interested in that with a couple people who've already signed up, we would love to have a couple more. 
um, and, and make it kind of a once a month thing. So if you'd like to be a part of that, thank you. Also, last but not least, we're going to send you a letter this week that explains all the things that go on with the move, like how to park, how to come in, the doors, what doors are locked, what doors are not going to be locked, things like that, all the important things you need to know so that we can just kind of live into this space really smoothly. Cool? You guys excited about this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's going to be so fun. Um, and it, it looks great down there. And uh, Ruben's not here yet. Dang it. So I, I was going to pick on Ruben a little bit, but we'll pick on him in the, in the future. Okay, everybody. Uh, we are, this year, practicing community. And I know that's kind of a nebulous term, a nebulous phrase, but it's, it's something that we're li- trying to live into. And we just finished a series in Haggai talking about what does it look like to be a community that gets to work together, that actually comes alongside each other. And there's just a whole bunch of themes in that from that series. But um, we're transitioning into a new series today. And what I want to um, kind of put in your brains a bit is as we are trying to present each other as mature followers of Jesus, as we are trying to help each other become more like what God wants us to be, um, we are going to practice a little bit of curiosity together. A little bit of curiosity about who God is. Now, sometimes we gloss over very familiar passages in Scripture because we know them so well, right? And there's nothing more familiar in Scripture than the verse John 3.16. It's the football verse, (laughs) right? Um, It's something that, um, it's so familiar, it just becomes just kind of rote and like we just know it and we think we know it. But I think there's some beauty in this verse that has, as we unpack each piece of it, will kind of open us up to the beauty and the mystery of who God is. And so in the past, we've done large chunks of Scripture. We did last year, we did Romans, and we did Revelation. And sometimes we take themes on in, in this time. Like last summer, we talked about walking with God. and What does it look like to walk? Um, in Scripture. But I felt like it would be a great time for us to kind of slow down and really unpack these words from this verse. We're going to use it as kind of a jumping off point. And I personally feel really drawn to getting back into talking about Jesus and the life of Jesus. Not like we haven't talked about Jesus, but getting into the Gospels a bit in my own life and my own journey. And uh, so we're going to start with a little background. Um, Elena, uh, with her beautiful commentary, read us (laughs) John 3, (laughs) the story of Nicodemus. Um, That was really funny. Thank you for doing that, Elena. Um, And there's this beautiful, like, this this is one of the four gospel accounts written, and this is one, this one's written by John, and John writes his gospel account last. Of all the gospel accounts we have, this is the one that was written the, the, the latest. <laughs> I'm having a hard time with words today. This is going to go well. Um, 
But John waits to write his. And John is a close disciple of Jesus. And he writes this when he's older. And I think it's really beautiful because John is telling his stories, telling these accounts of Jesus, I'm sure his whole life. But he gets to kind of synthesize how he's going to, how he's going to uh, share this account of Jesus uh, before he writes it. And he uses a lot of beautiful language. And some people have a hard time understanding John. He's got these really big things in there like light and darkness and all these major themes in his, in his account. And we'll get into all of that. But it's different than some of the other ones. There's two gospel accounts that have a genealogy. His doesn't. His, his, as some people called it, his account is kind of artsy. So if you're a creative, you'd probably really like John's gospel. But John 3.16, the context of it is there is a very um, high-ranking religious guy named Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus at night. He comes to Jesus like um, under kind of the cloak of darkness to ask him some questions about who he is and who God is in relation to him. And it's almost like Nicodemus is checking his life's work, right? He's trying to figure out if he's been right or not. And um, I think a lot of us can relate to Nicodemus. <laughs> like, am I, am, am I doing this right? Am I believing right? I had a conversation a number of months ago with someone who is deconstructing, that's the words they use, their faith journey. Meaning they grew, they grew up in church, they did a lot of religious organization stuff, and, and now they're just kind of like, wait a second, is, does this all add up? Right? And there's been a lot of that in our lives, um, especially the last number of years. And this person just shared with me, like, I feel like I'm walking away from the church. And it was a great conversation. It was hard. But the one thing they said to me was, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that if I walk away from the church, I'm afraid of being wrong. I was, that was like really curious statement for me to hear, and it got me thinking. Is the primary goal of God in the world to form people who are right? I mean, it just got me thinking about that, right? Like in my formation years in growing up in church and, and, the, and the youth group and the things that I was a part of and it, I, I always equated following Jesus with being right. Like mentally, intellectually right. And, and, and thinking the right things and knowing the right things about God and like having to have things nailed down. I don't know if that's your experience or not. I might be alone. But I was also felt like being right was being able to defend those things from all enemies, foreign and domestic, right? Like to defend those principles and those knowledge bits, bullets about God and about faith from every direction. 
I read, um, you know, in my uh, reading in the past of church history, there's uh, George Whitfield and um, John Wesley were two prominent, like, traveling preachers. And they were really good friends at the beginning. But then they started to notice how they were, they differed on certain beliefs they had about God and how God worked. And they started to grow apart because of those beliefs. And late in life, I forget which one wrote to the other one, but late in life, one of them wrote to the other one and said, do you remember when we were younger and, and we loved each other more because we didn't know so much? And I always, thought, I always was fascinated by that. Like, so let me ask you this. Could you ever imagine a scenario whereby you were unbelievably wrong, but still loved? Did you ever think of a possibility that would, would that possibility make a difference for you? And so for most of my life in faith, the whole goal for being saved was being right. And that truth, here's the deal, truth plays a part in things. I'm not saying, uh, you're not sitting here going like, is Ryan like a relativist here or what? No, no, I think either truth is important, but I just, I want to wrestle with some things with us today because let me come at this a little different way. This is, this is me working things out with you. I think there are worse things than being wrong. And I think that there are better things than being right. Okay? So, God's plan was never to create people who are right, but a people um, who are loving, and that they would demonstrate their rightness in their loving. Okay? And some of you are like, I'm not tracking with you. That's okay. So my heart for our conversation over the next, because it's going to take us 10 weeks. You're like, great. Yeah, no, it's going to be hopefully great. <laughs> so we're going to take chunks of John 3.16. We're going to unpack it. We're going to flesh it out. We're going to see where it takes us in the scriptures. And hopefully it'll paint us a huge picture of who God is and what he's after. And my heart for us in this conversation is a conversation. And so we're going to be building in some time each week for some dialogue as a church. Because I think that's what happens with theology. Theology, like thinking about and, and knowing who God is, is done in community. So we're going to practice that together. So we're going to leave some time at the end of some teaching to do that. Okay, so, but let's get to John 3.16. Let's throw this up on the screen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. I'm going to give you another version of it. For God so loved the cosmos, sorry, for God loved the cosmos in such a way that He gave His only Son, so everyone trusting in Him may not be destroyed but have era life. Some of you, some of you, Taylor Swift fans are so pumped right now. <laughs> if you don't get that reference, it's okay. I'm the bridge between what's cool. I'm just kidding. No. I'm going to, throw you, I'm going to show you the Greek. This is the Greek of that verse. 
It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah? You do. Um, so let's concentrate on for God. For God. This is um, beautiful beginning to our conversation right here. The word gar is the word for. Um, it's a pirate word. It's, um, <laughs> it actually means to introduce new material. Um, it actually has something to do. There's new information coming. So lots of scholars believe that when, uh, not with Elena left off, but the part that Elena left off in the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus was the end of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and that John begins a commentary on what just was said. And so this is John saying, for God. And he's wrapping up Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And so then we have the word theos, which is a very generic word for God. It's kind of like our English word for God. <laughs> it's not very specific. It's very generic. And I find it curious why John used this word. So the lectionary definition of theos is this, God, <laughs> a god or goddess, a general name of deities or divinities. A deity or god is a supernatural being who is considered divine or sacred. So this is like general Greek understanding of the word God. And as you know, there were many gods in Greek culture. Larry Hurtado says this, there was a virtual cafeteria of Roman era de deities from the many nations. And, and in this cafeteria, you did not have to restrict yourself to anyone or any number of the gods. Indeed, such exclusivity was deemed utterly bizarre. So why is John using a very ubiquitous word for God. Well, it's probably like um, you and I are used to using the word God. It's kind of like this idea of a title versus a name. For instance, um, some of you may have titles, but kind of around here you have a name. Where you work, it might be teacher, you know? It might be... Um, you know, officer, professor. Some of you try to call me pastor. I don't like it um, because you know my name. No, I don't. <laughs> so I knew this was gonna. I knew this was gonna start stuff, and like the rest of the day, you guys are gonna be like, mm. let's not. Okay. Angela does not call me fellow citizen. Okay. The only time Angela uses pastor when referring to me is when I don't act like a pastor. And she's like, nice, pastor. <laughs> right? There's a difference between like the, uh, a title and a name, right? We have all kinds of titles for God, but God's given, uh, revealed who he is. And John's going to get to that, but John's using this version of the word God to connect with Greek-speaking people. But John knows God's name. And what's interesting is when you go back in the Old Testament 
and you understand kind of how the people of Israel, there's, there's this kind of Abrahamic deal, and then there's this offspring of Abraham, and then they find themselves as a people living in Egypt underneath uh, over uh, a number of hundreds of years, and, and, and they kind of lose sight of kind of who God is. And then there's this moment with Moses, and Moses, he's got a whole backstory. We're not going to be able to get into it today. And, and God chooses to reveal himself to Moses because he wants Moses to reveal him to the people. And so Moses begins to have a conversation with God, and he starts to ask questions of God. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now, names in the Bible are really important. They're different than the names we call our kids and each other. Names in the scriptures reveal kind of a destiny, reveal kind of the character of who somebody is. And so my name, I guess there's some biblical stuff to it. The background of it's supposed to, I don't know, I had a little thing when I was a kid that it was like little king or kingly, right? I mean, which works, but um, <laughs> just kidding. It wasn't named like you're going to have a Ryan kind of life, right? Um, my name also means untilled pasture lands, which I don't know what that means. The point is, is like, we don't name things like they did in the Old Testament. In Scripture, a name stands for your character or your destiny. And when your name changed, it's because your destiny changed. Your, your, God changed your destiny and who you were. And so what Moses is asking is, what are you like? Who are you? And that's what Moses is asking. He wants to know what, not how to pronounce his name, but like, what is God like? And, and, and there's no equivalent in Hebrew for what is your name. The closest is what is the meaning and the significance of your name? That's the closest. He's not asking him his label. Like if God was ordering at Starbucks, what's your name? He's asking him what he's like. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you, has sent me to you. And this is Hebrew. Uh, it, it's ayah, asher, ayah. Kind of like karate, hayah, right? Okay, so ayah, asher, ayah, which is this imperfect tense, incomplete action. It basically says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. What I am, I will be. And it's where we get this idea that God is unshifting and unchanging in his nature. He basically says, it, it, this word's basically to exist. I actually exist. And in contrast for, for Moses, who grew up with Egyptian gods and goddesses, he says, unlike these pretender gods... I actually exist. And so when you fast forward, there's this passage in the life of Jesus where he's like, he says something so crazy. He's walking around and he says, before anything existed, I am. 
Jesus said this, like out of his mouth. And the people picked up rocks to stone him for being blasphemous. He was connecting himself with this passage. And he wasn't being very subtle about it. And then God gives this name for Moses. Um, He says, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you to me. Sorry, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So in their distant history, 400 years or so before, I mean, you can imagine like what that was like to be the kind of people that you knew you were a unique people, but you didn't really have, it was like every generation went by, there was like a, just a, a little bit less of a connection to that. And God's announcing, this is who I am. So this is a little nerdy, but when we get into it, the Lord is actually 6,800 times in the Old Testament. It is actually the third person of the form of the word, the name I am. It's actually he is, which is Yahweh, which is, we're going to get into some nerdy stuff here. So he says he is, he exists, I, uh, I am first person, right? Yahweh is he is third person. So when God says his name is Ayah, when we say it is Yahweh, no vowels, no consonants, original text, the Jews stop saying Yahweh out loud uh, because there's a lot of things, but there was, they were scared to say the name and attach it, misattach it to anything. And so they swapped it out with Adonai. And so all caps, Lord, is to distinguish, you know, what this is, this name. Lord is not a title. I mean, it's a title, not a name. So it's like this. Um, I call my wife Angela, Angela, not the wife, (laughs) right? So little pet peeve of mine, guys, don't refer to your wife as the wife. Like, I got to check with the wife. Like, that's it just brussels me a little bit. It's like, ugh. Um, I say Angela. And I have a lot of other names for her too. They're very endearing and they're just going to stay between us. But there's a tensed aspect to he is, past tense, now and in the future. And this is what he goes on to say. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And so they were so nervous about misattaching the name of God to anything that didn't, uh, couldn't bear the weight of it that they started just referring to God as the name. Ha-Shem. But it gets, it gets better because as we go further in the story, trust me, we're going to go somewhere with this. We go further in the story God reveals more to Moses. And in Exodus 34, this is the Jewish version of John 3.16. In Exodus 34, we learn about God's character. And, and this is like the ground zero theology of who God is. And it's the most quoted in the Bible by the Bible. And it's what rabbis call the 13 medot or the attributes of mercy it's like this big it's like the john 3:16 of the jewish text 
okay? And when we tend to think about God, you and I, we tend to think about God in light of kind of a Western kind of European philosophical tradition, which when we talk about who God is and what God is like, what do we bring up a lot? We bring up all the omnis, right? God is omnipresent and um, omniscient and, yeah, you got it, omnipotent. And all those things are true, but here's the problem. That's not how God reveals himself. Okay? Those are good. Those are very good Western ways of thinking about it, but that's not how God reveals himself in the text. This is, this is how God starts out by revealing himself. And this is lost in our time, but we want to kind of recapture that and bring it back and, 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 and be very familiar with it. It says in verse 6, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, I want you to look at those statements through the grid of, I am who I am, and what I am, I will be. When God says he is compassionate and gracious, how often is God compassionate and gracious? All the time. When God says he is slow to anger, how often is God slow to anger? All the time. What I am, I will be. And then we jump to Matthew, and you guys are like, thank you, we're going to the New Testament. Yes, we go to Matthew 121, and, and, and this is the announcement of Jesus. It says, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So in the Greek, throw this on the screen, um, I think it's up here. No, it's not up here. In the Greek, um, we translate I'm not going to pronounce it, but in Greek translation, it's a Greek translation of a Hebrew name, Yeshua, which is Yahweh saves. And so the angels were not speaking English. Are we in agreement on this? On the announcement of Jesus, the angels were not speaking English. Um, And... Jesus is the Latin version of the Hebrew name Yahweh saves. So, back to John. There are reasons why John used the generic Greek version of God. Why? Because he's writing to Greeks. Simple. When you read the beginning of John, it's all this stuff about the logos and and what that means, and we've talked about that before in the past. And what is fascinating here is, I think, the connection between Yahweh and Yahweh saves. And people begin to pick up on this. Paul writes to the Colossians, he says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Now, let me ask you a question. In the Old Testament, do you think that they were allowed to make images of God? The people? No. I mean, it was forbidden to make images of God. And basically, it was said over and over again, do not make any image of God and because I didn't appear to you in an image. But here is kind of a trip, right? What is Paul saying? He's saying that if you want to know what the image of God is like, you look at Jesus. 
who's supreme over everything. He goes into, he goes, he's the firstborn over all creation. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that there's a second and third and fourth. It means that this person is in charge. For in him all things were created, uh, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Does that leave anything out? No, it doesn't. It says he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's, he's claiming a far bigger uh, version of Jesus than merely a prophet or a teacher, although he was both of those. He is the physical representation of Yahweh in the world. And he is the head, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Paul goes on in Colossians 2 to say this, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Does that leave any fullness out? The answer is no. And then last one here before we kind of get back to John. Hebrews. It says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So this character of God, this etching, this name, this is is written down. It doesn't change. He's the exact copy of who God is. His very inner essence. He's the very inner essence of God, the exact copy of God's inner essence in Jesus. So in Yeshua, God becomes concrete. And it's a whole bigger conversation that we can have about the Trinity, and that's not for today, but if you want to know what the inner essence of what God is like, you look at Jesus of Nazareth. That's what you look to. You want to know what God is like? He's like Jesus. And it's pretty amazing, would you not agree? And for Theos, when when John says for Theos loved the world. It's this generic opening up space in their culture to show what Yahweh is like. Now, I was going to pick on Reuben, but he's not here. Reuben has done a masterful job down there. And I can't wait, if you haven't seen it yet, the the woodwork, it's beautiful. There's so much happening that's got his handprints all over it. And there'll be plenty of thanking him. But I was going to pick on him today because uh, basically what John is saying by using the word theos is he's opening up a language pilot hole to get God into their culture, the God of the scriptures, to get Yahweh and, and Yahweh's son Jesus, Yahweh saves into their culture. And a pilot hole is where you drill a small hole so that you can do something. You can, you can get a, a nail or a screw in and it won't 
the wood. Okay? And the reason why I say that is because what John is doing is very clever here. In the same way, so let's talk about theology really quick, because the word theos is God, and it's the study of God as theology. In the same way, it's, impo- it's possible to know, one, know someone's title, okay, and not know them. It's also possible to know a lot about theology and not know God. Would you agree? Jesus says that the demons in the New Testament have better theology, the best theology. They know a lot about God. So it's possible to know all the theology and not know God. And it's possible to not know much about theology and know God very well. Would you agree? Now, it was really funny because this last week in our 10-man table group, we're in Acts 4, and there's this beautiful passage where Peter and, is it John? Is it John? Peter and John? And they were like, they were preaching, they were doing this thing, and, and, they, and they were getting ridiculed by the temple, uh, all the, the elite Jewish people, and they're like, these guys are unschooled and untrained. And yet they had a connection with God that they didn't. And there's this thing that happens as we kind of wrap this up. There's this thing that happens, and that's in me included, that I think if I believe a certain set of ideas, um, that I'm good. That if I believe those certain ideas are right, and that there's other ideas that aren't right, then I'm good. And the danger is that it can be a substitute for actually knowing God himself. And here's how you can tell. When you and I cease being curious about what God is like in the world. I think that's a huge warning sign. When we're not curious anymore about what God is like in the world. You see, we think we know this verse And I'll be honest, that can be a real trap. That somehow we can capture this person in a series of statements that we're supposed to mentally agree with. But that's not, that's nothing like entering the life that God has invited us into. The more we follow Jesus, God should get bigger, not smaller. And here's the deal, bad theology does harm. Like bad thinking about God does harm. But here's the thing. Good theology doesn't rescue us. And it doesn't make us into the loving people that, uh, that are image bearers of Jesus either. And so if certainty is the goal, the result of all that is we simply cease being curious. Remember, we've had this conversation before. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is actually certainty. And we're, we're no longer curious. My hope is that we, this would provoke us to chew on the Gospels, to chew on Jesus, who Jesus is. And so John uses this very generic version of God, and we all go, okay. But when we ask people if they believe in God or if they ask us, do you believe in God? It's like, okay, what does that, what does that mean? What is God like? What is God like? And for you, 
question is, what is God like? Well, he better be more and more like Jesus. And now here's the thing. I just want to be real honest because last week I announced to everybody that at some point in my life as a child, I wanted to be a fire truck. <laughs> and that was during the kind of the sharing at the end. And, and so I had a lot of weird things as a kid, but as I was growing up, I equated God with different things. Now, the first one's going to date me a bit, but the first one, um, I used to think of God a lot like Ward Cleaver from Leave it to Beaver, Beaver's dad. Who names their kid Beaver? <laughs> Do you guys know the show Leave it to Beaver? Like four of you, great. So it's a great show, it's black and white. Whenever, I know it's reruns. I watch reruns too. I'm not that old. <laughs> but there was always these times in these shows with Leave it to Beaver where he would get in trouble because he had these like satanic influences in his life. I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> adding too much. But he had these friends in his life that was always like, come on, Beave, you can do this. You know. And then Beaver would get in trouble. He'd make some mistakes. And he'd always ended up in Ward Cleaver's study right? And his dad always had this disappointment, disappointing scowl on his face. And like, as a kid, like, I would go to church and the, the felt board and the thing, and then I'd go like, oh, dad, uh, 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 Ward Cleaver. He's usually disappointed with me. And in the show, Ward never really spent time with his boy. He just went to work. And they were just off to run the neighborhood. So I had this feeling like God was this kind of like, he was just, he was around when I was in trouble to get me back on track and then he was no longer around. Some of you, the other one, the other version that might kind of ring a bell more with you is that God is like some sort of a county sheriff. It's just waiting for you to break the speed limit. And if you stay doing the right things, then he's not going to bother you. A.W. Tozer said that we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And here's the thing. Most of us have a vision of God or a version of God that we think intellectually and, you know, you can, you can actually speak that version of God. But some of us also bring to the table a very tacit vision of God based on our family of origin and how we grew up. And some of us have a hard time relating with God because we have different things in our life um, that, have, that have happened to us. So we have this angry tyrant view of God, whom God is mad at the world, and he's like, get off my lawn type God, right? And, and it's like, that shapes you. If you have that version of God, it could potentially shape you into being some sort of a religious bigot. Some of you might have a version of God that's this bohemian, kind of laid-back, progressive, tolerant God. The only thing he's not tolerant about is intolerance, right? Or you have this cosmic life coach view of God or whatever it is. I mean, the reality is no matter how you look at God, some of us, we can't help but look at God through a lens of our family of origin and, and understanding what God is like. So if you had a very performance-oriented parenting structure in your life, you might look at God as very performance-oriented and that you have to perform for God. 
Or if God was very, parents who were critical or, or, or people in your, in your family that were not interested in you, didn't pursue you, or, or they couldn't be trusted, you bring that with you into your version of who Theos is. Now, what Scripture tells us, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And how do we know what Jesus is like? Well, in your Bible, some of you may have one today. These are the Gospels. It's the Gospels. That would take most of you not very long to read. But I'm going to tell you something. If you want to know what Jesus is like, My Bible reading plan for you would be the Gospels over and over and over. And be curious about who God is in Jesus. He's healing people. He's he's inviting people to his table. He doesn't seem to be like punitive. He actually seems to have this beautiful love, and, and, and it's like this is who God is like. This is the inner essence of who God is. Slow to anger, abounding in love, compassionate love from generation to generation. Theology does not save you or make you right. And so I want us to be curious. And because we cease being curious and filled with wonder, we become rigid and judgmental. And I want to look and read and wrestle with who Jesus is because Jesus is the exact copy of God's inner essence. So here's what we're going to do. Before we go to communion, we have a little bit of time, I think. A little bit of time. I'm going to do a little Q&R with you guys. We have a microphone around here somewhere. Randy got it. Um, And here's the thing. The whole series is designed to take words that we think we know and make them mysterious and big and beautiful once again. So I want to talk. I want to have a dialogue. I want to I hear from you. Has anything in this conversation already caused you any curiosity? Um, do you want to wonder out loud together? Uh, maybe some of you are thinking about your version of who God is and how you've thought of God your whole life and you want to just kind of share that. I mean, in just vulnerability and honesty today. Um, but I, I want to just do a little Q&R today. And it's not Q&A because they're not going to be necessarily good answers. There's just going to be a response. <laughs> um, but thoughts, questions, let's, let's do this. Anybody have anything they want to share or ask? Don't be afraid. Tim's my plant. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> you got to use the mic. We got to hear it. Uh, I want to take it back, not just to the Jesus thing, but what you said about being right. Mm. Um, I think when, because I've walked in past the world for a long time, and I was raised. Um, by my dad, who was a preacher and teacher for, I think when I asked him my question, he'd already been at it 
40 something years. Mm. And I thought I had received enough education that now I was gonna, I was gonna be right. Mm. And I asked my dad this question, and it was one of those theological questions. I'm like, Dad, Calvinism or Armenianism? And this is the age-old mm. battle of the theological schools. And what my dad said to me changed my life, literally. Uh, I said, Dad, what do, you, what do you believe? Calvinism or Armenianism? And he looked at me and he said, I don't know. And I'm like, I, I said, Dad, I'm, I'm serious. And I said that to him, I'm serious, like you're not, obviously. I'm like, Dad, I'm, I'm serious, I want to know. And he, and he got that he used to get, and he looked at me and he said, Tim, so am I. Mm -hmm. And the more I know God, mm -hmm. the less I have to know. Mm -hmm. And it rocked me. Like, mm -hmm. it, it really did, but it has... I, I want to live not, not just know stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's the beauty of where you're headed, right. that... The more we know God, the, the less we have to, to right. know stuff. Right. So thank you. Thanks, Tim. Yeah. Any questions? Or, oh, we're already doing it. Um, something that impacted me was um, the opposite of faith is certainty. Mm -hmm. And when you said that, I was like, oh my gosh, like I wanted, like, yeah, we'll do the wave, guys. That's awesome. I love that. Um, but also at the same time, like, yeah, I always, it's, it's true. Why do we mm -hmm. seek certainty? I mm -hmm. don't know. What is that? Do you know what that could be in humans to want that right. certainty? Right. I think it's a, especially for us modern Western kind of thinkers, um, we feel like if we have answers, um, that it somehow, um, it solidifies or bolsters kind of our position, so to speak. And I always think that faith, genuine faith, isn't, um, we're going to get into belief down the road here, because there's the word believes in here, but it, it, it's an idea of like enacted love. It's like enacted trust. It's like my body, my whole life is moving towards this Jesus, right? And it doesn't mean that I have it all figured out, kind of like Tim said, but it, it, it means that um, it, it, that I'm, I'm trusting and moving with my trust. And so the, the reality is this certainty um, is the tricky biz in church world is um, I want to give you all the answers because you want the answers. And so if I show up with all the answers, well, you're going to show up because you want them. And I don't think that's what a church community is supposed to be about. I think a church community is about to be about faith, trust, and wrestle. And so, that's a good question. I love how you guys are making Randy work <laughs> and going back and forth. Yeah. Hey, Ryan. So, one of the things you said jumped out at me, which is, you know, to understand the character of God, mm -hmm. we read about Jesus. It's mm -hmm. very clear. Mm -hmm. 
And I've thought about that before, and I want to get your thoughts on this. Yeah. You know, reading through the Gospels, Jesus has some really interesting properties. He can be a little annoyed, mm -hmm. puckish, mm -hmm. even. Um, there, there's these things that, w that I don't necessarily equate with an all-sovereign mm -hmm. creator of the universe, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. What are your thoughts? Well, it's good. That's a great question, because um, it is tricky. He does these things where he says things like, before anything existed, I am. You're just like, whoa. I mean, it's that whole liar, Lord, lunatic thing of C.S. Lewis, where it's like, okay, he, he says something like that. It sounds like he's either mad um, or he's, he's, uh, he's a liar or he's legis legitimately the Lord, right? So, um, but Jesus, it also says in, in, in Philippians 2 that God kind of, Jesus gives up some of his godness, you know, to become finite. And I think that that's the part where we wrestle, we juggle. That's a beautiful big mystery of how God can be, Jesus can be fully God and at the same time fully human and still have these human qualities where he's bound by time and space. You know, he's not like teleporting from Galilee to Jerusalem, right? He's walking. And so, yeah, this is the part, this is the beautiful mystery, right? That we get to wrestle out together, you know, as we read scripture, like how he acts is genuinely who God is. And, um, and we wrestle with that. So, any other things as we wrap up? We'll do one more. Uh, for me, I think what stands out is the word love. When, you say, when it's, obviously we read um, John 3, 16, for God so loved. And just the uh, mystery and the complexity behind that word. Yeah. <laughs> Next week, Holmes. Big. It's not like I love tacos and God love the world are the same love, right? Um, we're going to get into that a ton next week um, and talk about this beautiful love that God has for us and all of us. And so here's where we're going to transition towards communion. And rather than being uh, standoffish, God isn't standoffish. God isn't Ward Cleaver. Okay? God isn't a sheriff waiting to pull you over. Uh, God didn't just set things in motion and then went away. God is involved. He's in this ongoing relationship with his creation. And he remains a part of it, and he passionately cares for it. And this is seen all throughout the Bible. Okay? God calls his creation good, and through his relationship with his people Israel, he leads them to the promised land. And then through the prophets, God speaks to the people and tries to invite them to living the right way and trusting him the right way. And this God so loved the world. He loved the world in such a way that God finally, in the great act of love, gave it, gave the world Jesus. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, he was handed over. Jesus told his closest followers what would happen. And they had to wrestle with it. And they didn't quite believe it. And he took something that was very close to their tradition, and he broke the Passover bread. And he broke it, and he passed it, and he said, this is what's going to happen because I love the world. 
my body's going to be broken. And he passed the cup and he said, this is also what's going to happen because I love the world and my blood will be spilled. And as we come to the table, what we do is we, become, we come to the mystery of it. And we ingest the mystery into our lives. And that's what you're invited to do today as you come to the table. And so Holly and Donna are going to lead us into some worship and, and just take the time. And what I want you to do is, is, is ask, like, what, what is my version of God? How do I see God? And maybe your prayer would be, God, I want to see who you are. And I'm willing to investigate this Jesus even more. So come to the table when you're ready. We have individual cups. Um, you can dip today if you'd like. Um, we have gluten-free. Just come when you're ready.